Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went to the hire and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent, sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no, him, no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare? And there here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. So he began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, out, come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered to his father, look, all these years, I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. Amen. Welcome, everybody. My name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here. Would you uh, pray with me as we get rolling? What if somebody said no? <laughs> Jesus, we thank you so much for your presence this morning, for the gathering of your people in this room to hear your story proclaimed. God, I feel like a lot of us bring into this place a lot of different kinds of gospels. Stories that we told ourselves, stories that we were told in our family of origin, stories that we heard from our tradition, stories that we heard from the world around us. And those stories, they may claim to be yours, but they're very rarely as wildly good as yours. And so today, as we see the way that you tell the gospel, the way that you tell your story, would it press on our imaginations? Would it expand our understanding of love and goodness and grace? 
And would it call us into relationship with you and into relationship with one another? Would it center your table and your party and your celebration? And would it speak to us of love? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in a series entitled Prodigal, looking at the parable of the prodigal sons. And we're calling it prodigal sons because there are two sons in this story who deserve equal amounts of attention. Last or two weeks ago, we began with the story of the younger brother, which takes up the first part of this parable. And today we're going to look at the story of the older brother, which we find in the second part of this narrative. And the reason we're doing this, the reason that we're looking at the parable of the prodigal sons is that we're asking ourselves a question, which is this, does our gospel look like Jesus? Do the stories we tell, gospel is a story, it means good news story, do the stories that we tell, the presentation of Jesus that we talk about, the stories of God, of self, of others, do they look like Jesus? Do they look like the stories that Jesus told? Does it look like the way Jesus described God, self, and others? When we think about what God is accomplishing in the world, does it resemble what God said God was accomplishing in the world? Or does it look like the stories we've absorbed from family of origin? Does it look like the stories we've absorbed from our tradition? Does it look like the stories we've absorbed from the world around us? And some of those stories are good, they're right, they're rooted in something that is truthful, but often they can begin to pick up pieces of the narrative that reflect more ourselves than they reflect Jesus. And so to ask ourselves this question, do the stories we tell look like Jesus' story, we wanted to root ourselves in the longest of all the parables. So the parable of the prodigal sons is the longest parable Jesus tells. It has the most amount of strange details in it, the most amount of mystery, weird plot hooks, and interesting things that are happening. And the reason we wanted to locate ourselves in this parable is that when Jesus is pressed about what it is that he's doing, when Jesus is asked, what are you up to in the world? He turns to parables. Stories about what he's doing, stories about what he is accomplishing. And the parable of the prodigal son is the, maybe the climax of all of those stories. It carries themes and annotations of all the other parables before it, but is more elaborate, more detailed, and suggests to us even more than maybe the other parables that we have heard. And today we're going to look at the second half of this narrative, the story of the older brother. And the older brother does not get as much attention, I think, when we talk about these parables. The younger brother is a beautiful story. It's a story that we love to tell. I think it's a story that we love to find ourselves within, and we should, and we can. We can resonate with whoever we are in the story of the prodigal sons. But it is important for us today to pay attention to the older brother, because we may not like this very much, but for most of us in this room— the character that we are most like in this story is the older brother. If you're in this room, not just to insult every one of you, but if you're in this room, you're a religious insider. 
You believe the story. And for the most part, you have made pretty good decisions about the way you're going to live your faith and the kind of orientation you'll have in this world. And even if you're like, I'm not an older brother, I just barely made it in this morning. Well, here's the hard truth about family and aging is that even when we begin as younger brothers, if we're not careful, a lot of us grow up to be older brothers. We do this faith thing, this religious story thing, and what happens to us, unfortunately, is that the longer we're here, the longer we do this story, if we are not careful, then the wild grace of Jesus begins to actually feel a bit offensive, a bit challenging. Maybe it got us in the room, but now that we're in the room, we all sort of become protectors of who gets in the room. And so in this story, Jesus is going to confront the older brother with the same kind of wild grace that is used to confront the younger brother. He's going to invite him to the party, to celebrate, to be with, to belong. And it's great news, but it's difficult news for older brothers. It's great news to be invited to a party when you're a younger brother because when you are a younger brother, you have nothing left to lose. But as older brothers who are invited to a party where class and category are done away with, well, that's hard news because we actually have a lot to lose. A lot of things that define us, a lot of things we want to hold on to, a lot of things that we're not necessarily ready to lose. And so it's good news, but it can be kind of hard news. We're first introduced to the older brother in verse 25 of the parable. And here's what we find. It says this, Now his older son was in the field, and he was coming in from the field, from a dutiful day of laboring and working, and he approached the house and heard music and dancing. And then he stops. The older brother is doing what most of us older brothers spend a lot of our time doing, working hard. And he returns from a day of working in the fields, and as he is approaching his house, I think this is so fascinating, as he is approaching his house, he hears from a distance music and dancing, and then he stops. Who doesn't go investigate music coming from their own house? I don't care what the reason is. If I come to my house, if I pull up into my house, open the door, and I hear music playing, I want to know what's going on inside. There could be a thief who's listening to my tunes while stealing my Sonos. I need to know. And maybe, maybe you don't assume the worst. Maybe, maybe the older brother is just, uh, he's just forgot something. And so you should go investigate just to make sure you didn't miss your dad's birthday or something. Maybe they're throwing a birthday party and you look like a mean kid because you didn't come to the party. Whatever the reason is, I think it is fascinating that he does not enter the party that he is hosting. There's music, there is dancing, and he stops. And we don't initially know the reason that he stops and does not enter the party until the next verse. To investigate what's going on, the older brother calls a servant to learn what's happening, and we figure out what's happening inside the younger brother, or the older brother as well. Verse 27 to 28 says this, the servant replied to the older brother, Your younger brother has come home. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. 
Then the older son was furious and did not want to enter in. When the older brother learns that his younger brother has returned and is receiving a party, he does not celebrate. He does not experience joy. Instead, he is enraged. Unlike the father, he does not see this as good news. And Jesus doesn't tell us why the older brother is enraged. I think this is a gap in the story intended for us to read our own stories and experiences into. But I have a guess as to why the older brother does not see this as good news. And I think it's because of this. He's afraid. The older brother is furious because he is afraid. He is afraid of what his younger brother's return might mean for him and his family. And the truth is, if you remember from earlier in the story, he has really good reason to be afraid. The last time that his younger brother was here, if you remember, he cursed his father and by implication his older brother, he took inheritance that did not belong to him, left for a foreign land, abandoned his older brother to work his father's fields alone, to do so without his friend, without his partner, without the person he grew up with. He threatened the livelihood of the family. Inheritance isn't just money in the ancient world. It's land, it's cattle, it's the things you use to continue providing for yourself. So the younger son takes all of these things from the older, from the father, from the community, and leaves. And so as the older brother sees his younger returning, sees the party for the younger, he has every reason to be afraid. This kid's a threat. Last time he was here, he stole from us. He put our livelihood, our community, our honor in jeopardy. The older brother has experienced real loss because of the younger. The younger's departure has actually cost him something. I think it's easy to villainize the older brother in this story until we remember that the pain he is experiencing, the fear he is experiencing, comes from something so legitimate. How else would we respond if a thief came back to the site of the crime? Probably similarly. In fear and anger. I think that's why the older brother is not happy when he sees the younger returning. And not to make matters worse, but there's been no restitution. There's been no apology. There's been no repentance. The older brother is just coming in from the fields and he hears a hoedown and no one has said sorry to him yet. No one has paid him back yet. No one even came to the field and got him to let him know that his, older, his younger brother had returned. So from his vantage point, it just looks like someone taking more of what is not earned. A thief returned. So he's afraid. And that fear stems from a real loss, a real wound, a genuine trauma. And it's important to name, as we talk about fear, that fear is not inherently wrong. 
what the older brother is experiencing is legit. It's his body telling him that something potentially bad could happen again. So fear does. It sends us messages that are worth paying attention to most of the time. The other day, uh, this is the same level. I, the other day I was fishing, and I was walking by a bush, and I heard a growl, like a legit growl, which made me leap away from the bush. I think that was my body responding appropriately to the fear. Did I investigate what it was? No. I was afraid. It's probably just a big squirrel, but I'm not going to go investigate. Do squirrels grow? I don't know. Sometimes fear hits you and you need to respond. The problem with fear is not that it is in our bodies, not that it is communicating to us, is that fear can go sour when we don't tend to it. When we don't pay attention to the fear, when we don't acknowledge it, when we don't investigate it, when we don't unravel it, fear can begin to metastasize. And instead of revealing the wound at the heart of us, the loss that the older brother has, metastasized fear will actually begin to hide the wound and the loss that we've experienced. So instead of getting to the core of what is sending fear signals to your body, you'll actually push it aside and begin to villainize, begin to scapegoat, begin to blame, begin to look for other causes and cues to why you are experiencing this kind of fear, which we see happen in the text. The the older brother experiences this fear. It triggers in his body. He is furious. And then in verse 30, the father comes out to entreat with the older brother, and we see this fear acting in ways that hide. It says this, the older brother looks at the father and says, when this son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him? In this moment, the older brother acts like the issue, the wrong, is the father's wasted inheritance. The father is a real victim of something in this moment. And the older brother takes that story, that wound from the father, and then uses it to hide his own pain, his own fear, his own regret. He even in this moment accuses the father in a way. There's this like tacit accusation and blame against the father. How dare you let this person back into our home? How dare you let the thief return? Don't you know how much of a threat he is? Don't you know how much he has cost us? But nowhere in the text does it say that the father feels this way. But that's what metastasized or sour fear does. It blames, it scapegoats, it hides, and it looks for reasons to justify its own actions. Co-opting the father's pain and story, making it his own, even though the father has never said any of those things. And as the father gently entreats the older brother, the real truth begins to get revealed. The older brother continues to explain why he's so mad, and I think we see what's actually happening. He says this to the father, Look, I served you all these years. I never disobeyed your instructions. Yet you have never given me as much as a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. 
And here's the real fear of the older brother being revealed. It's not about his father's loss. It's not about the wasted inheritance of his father. It's not about the wound of his father. It's not about the lack of belonging in his father. It's not about any of those things. It's about himself. It's about his own legitimate loss and wound. It's about working the fields alone without his younger brother. It's about being abandoned by his friend. It's about a wasted inheritance and wondering if there will be anything left for him now that this younger brother has returned. The older brother is afraid that his younger brother's return will mean loss, more cost for himself. As he sees the younger brother returned, all he can see is scarcity. Scarcity is what happens when fear of loss begins to shape the way we think, begins to shape our imagination for the world. The world becomes a place of limited or scant resources, and it can be anything. It can be love, it can be recognition, it can be food, it can be resources, it can be glory, it can be attention, relationship. Seeing the world through a fear of loss and a hole in our hearts, that kind of scarcity begins to set limits on those kinds of resources around us. Like there's just not enough for everybody. That my, my younger brother returns, there's not going to be enough for both of us. It's a scarce resource. Now both the brothers, I think, experience scarcity, but it just plays out in different ways. In the younger brother, he experiences scarcity, so he takes what's his and he leaves. It's the feeling that I get when I go to a party and I'm not getting enough attention, so I take my shrimp and I bail. <laughs> you always got to bring shrimp to a party. Hospitality 101. <laughs> In the older brother, I've never brought shrimp to a party. I think I should actually clarify that. In the older brother, scarcity looks different. It doesn't look like bailing from the party or leaving the party. Instead, scarcity in older brothers engenders hard work and impossible standards. Younger brothers, they take what's theirs and they leave. No one can have it. No one can have what's mine. I'm out. But in older brothers, we work hard. We work really hard. And we impose greater and greater standards on ourselves. In religious circles, you can see it play out all the time. It's maybe the easiest place for us older brothers to find a sense of security. We feel some fear of loss. And so we obey. We submit to the rules of our religious community. We follow the rules of scripture and spirituality to a T. And we're pretty good at being obedient when we need to. We're good at working the fields, at staying in the house. And so we'll work really hard in order to find a sense of that security or wholeness or rightness to mend the fear that we're experiencing. We'll outwork other people in order to get what is ours. The problem with hard work and obedience is that it does not ever loosen its grip on us. 
And it doesn't matter if you succeed or if you fail. The result is actually mostly the same. If you fail as an older brother, you think maybe it would reveal to you that this system doesn't work. But most of the time, what it does is it fills you with greater guilt and a deeper commitment to working hard and being obedient and perfecting the system that you've established. But the same is true if you succeed. Because if you win the race of working hard, well, the standards just get heavier because now you have to maintain the impossible weight that you've placed on your own shoulders. You gotta keep working hard, keep being obedient, stay in the field, cover for the loss of your younger brother, take on more responsibility, show them that you really belong, that you're really worthy of this thing, that you really can have what belongs to you. We do this in religious circles, we do this in relationships. We do this in our jobs. Work hard. Try to manage our anxiety or our fear through performance. But the truth is, scarcity is never fulfilled by hard work. It is always fueled. It just gets worse. And as it gets worse in us, and as those standards are rested upon us, upon older brothers, it doesn't disrupt, it doesn't make room for clarity. Most of the time, what it does to us is begin to make us resentful. Older brothers tend to get resentful. We start to get frustrated at why don't we see other people performing the same way that we are? Why don't you work as hard as I do? do this in my relationship with my wife all the time. I take on these weights that do not belong to me. I'll work hard in order to secure some kind of sense of attachment. And then all of a sudden I find myself being mad that she has not met me in those same ways. I start to get resentful. I start to get bitter. I'll impose the same standards that I've imposed on myself onto her. We wonder why the people around us don't reciprocate, why they don't work as hard as us. We can resent those around us, our younger brothers. We can resent the business itself, the work that we do, the religion that we're a part of. We can resent the Father, even God. We begin to wonder why do these things not meet us in our hard work? And it's not that we're against younger brothers coming home all the time. I think that's important to say also. We just want to know that they're going to work hard when they get there. Right? Maybe my younger brother can return, but I just need to see him put some hustle in. I want to see him in the field, not at the party. How dare he go to the barbecue before he comes in the field and does whatever we do in the field? This is my agrarian knowledge ran out right there. You could see it happen. <laughs> I want to see him work. I want to see him sorry. I want him to pay. I want him to acknowledge my pay. I want to see it cost him. And there's the real secret of us older brothers. We want to know that it costs others as much as it's cost us. We want to know that they've felt the same way that we felt, that they've endured at least some of what we've endured. Two weeks ago, when we started this series, I told a story about someone who I, I love very much, 
who has done something, actually has done a repeated set of things that feel very painful. To me, to Heather, to Missio as like a community, there's like a recurring pattern of things that feel very painful to me. And I've been reflecting, like, is this my younger brother? Someone who's done something that's cost me, that's hurt me, that's offended me? Is this my younger brother? And as I was reflecting on this passage and the older brother specifically, I began to run through this dynamic. And I was like, well, I want this person home. I do want that. I do believe restoration is better than not restoration. I believe that. I believe reconciliation is good. But then I began to imagine, like, well, what if I was the older brother coming in from the fields and what I saw was a party, and I was like, oh, that would make me so angry. This person has cost me. And I want to know that it has cost them too. And I'm going to call it, here's the thing, I'm going to call it justice. I'm going to call it holiness. I'm going to call it righteousness. I'm going to use the Father's story in order to justify all of my pain inside. But at the end of the day, what I want to know is that it sucked for them too. That it hurt as much to be away from me as it hurt me to be away from them. That the decisions they made, the actions they took, that it was painful. I want to know that it cost something. Because I'm an older brother. The German philosopher, this is a twist, Friedrich Nietzsche used to say that equality, you didn't expect that, did you? (laughs) Used to say that equality was a value rooted in envy. And the reason he said that is because he's a very depressed German who was not fun at parties. But he used to say that equality was a value rooted in envy because we did not like that other people had the things that we wanted. And so what we really wanted when we wanted equality was for the playing field to be leveled. Now, I think Nietzsche was wrong. I want to say that. But I think he is naming the feeling older brothers have. That is what we want. We want it to cost. And we're going to call it justice. And we're going to call it righteousness. And we're going to, in religious circles, use all of the right religious language in order to justify our desire for people to pay. But at the end of the day, and so we want it to pay. And what I think is so interesting about this dynamic in this parable is that nowhere in this story does the father demand repayment. So the older brother uses the story and the pain of his father to justify his own demands, but nowhere in the story does the father demand repayment. Nowhere does the father shout for judgment. Nowhere does he shout for restitution or repayment. It all comes from the sons. These sons impose on themselves things that are foreign to the father in the story. The young son comes home telling himself a story of shame and of not belonging. And when he gets home, the father doesn't even let him finish it. 
And the older brother shouts that something has to be paid and the father just keeps saying, I've already paid it. Nowhere does the father impose these things. And this is a very difficult truth that we older brothers have to wrestle with right here is that we are way more obsessed with judgment than God ever is. We impose it on ourselves and on others. We demand ourselves and others pay a cost that God is consistently saying, I have already paid. So what does the father do in this moment? Go back to verse 28. It says this. The older brother was furious and did not want to enter into the party. And so the father came out and begged him. It's easy to miss moments like this, but I do think they're worth paying attention to because the father is at the party with his young returning Son, and yet he looks around and he notices someone very important is missing. So, the moment that the father has been waiting for, the moment that it literally says in the text that he was watching on the road for, this moment of return, this moment of hope, the thing that he's longed for for we don't know how many years in this story, he leaves. in order to find his other now lost son. Jesus began this parable by telling two other ones, the shepherd who leaves 99 to find one sheep and a woman who leaves nine coins to find one. And in this moment, we see a father leave a party to discover a lost son. And the father finds the older brother in the field. And he comes to him and begins to entreat him to enter into the party And it's in that moment that the older brother lashes out all the things that we've just looked at, all the things that we have just read. He gives to the father. He gives to the father all of his scapegoating, all of his blaming, all of his anger, all of his hiding, all of his scarcity, all of his fear. And the father absorbs all of it. Every iota of it. You're mad? It's okay. You're angry? It's do it right here. You're, you're frustrated that someone hasn't paid? I'll pay. I'll take every shred of the anger and the frustration and the judgment that you impose on yourself and that you impose on your brother. Put it here. I will endure it. I will absorb it. And when the older brother has exhausted himself, the father says the most beautiful, tragic, disarming thing. He says this. Then the father said, Son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. The other day at our home church, we were talking about this parable And somebody who has never been before asked the most beautiful question. He was like, why do only younger brothers get parties? Which I feel like, what a beautiful older brother question. Why do only younger 
brothers get parties? Why don't I get celebrated? Why don't I get the abundance? And in this moment, the father answers that question, it was always yours. You wanted to throw a party? Why didn't you? You wanted to have a fattened calf, barbecue it up, invite all of your friends over. The father's like, it was always already yours. You could have done whatever you wanted. This belongs to you. You wanted to come inside for dinner? I've had the table set since you left the fields. Everything that is mine is always already yours. You just refuse to enter and instead spent all your time by the door making sure that no one else got in. The fascinating thing about older brothers is that everything our heart longs for, all the things we want, all the things our fear and scarcity convinces us are being stolen from us are already made available to us. But because we impose impossible standards on ourselves, because we are navigating the world in fear and loss, we keep ourselves from what God has already given. The feast is right there. But instead of going to the dance party, we are so concerned with checking people's debts. And instead of going to the feast, we keep checking the ledger. Instead of entering into the party, we stay in the fields, dutifully working and laboring. And God is like, what are you doing? I've laid the table. The work is done. Come and throw down. The party is here. The thing about older brothers is that we impose impossible laws and the people it costs the most at the end of the day is us. In our need for others to pay, we keep paying. In our need for others to suffer, we keep suffering. The party is happening right behind us, just enter. We're so obsessed with cost that we forget the father paid the bill. And that's what's so tragic and beautiful and disorienting about the father's response to the older brother. It's its own kind of merciful judgment. It's already yours. It's so challenging to me as an older brother, so beautiful. And I, as I say it out loud, even right now, as I say it out loud, I am one part like relieved, one part furious. Like, you know how hard I worked? And I can feel all these objections beginning to rise within me about my younger brother, about myself. And I think Jesus knows that this is happening to us, or at least to me. And so, before the older brother can even respond to his father, the father has one more thing to say. It comes in the end of verse 31 into verse 32. It's the last line of the parable. The father says this. He says, everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. 
He was lost and is now found. This moment is so interesting. Just moments before, the father says this. We're going to look back at what the older brother said. Because just moments before, in the older brother's tirade, he said this to his father. This son of yours refused or returned after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes. So when the older brother makes an accusation about the father and the son, this is the language. Who possesses who? This is your son, not mine. But then look at what the father does. We had to celebrate and be glad because who? This brother of yours. What? This brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. Out of his wound, his loss, the older brother has tried to separate himself from the father, from the table, and from the younger brother. But all it has done is dislocate him even further. The older brother is alone in the fields while the party is happening right behind him. And so the father comes out to him and says, Hey, the one you lost, he's inside. The one that caused these wounds and this loss, he is inside. The real gift, the real prize is waiting for you inside. This is your party too because the thing you lost, well, let's come home. That hole you have experienced, the loss you've been dealing with, come inside and let's see if we can make it whole. When we talk about the gospel, we often talk about reconciliation with God, which is true and right and important. In this parable, the sons need to be reconciled to the Father. But we cannot miss that the gospel must and always includes reconciliation to one another. That for a house to be made whole, all the sons need to be there. And God is concerned with getting everyone home. The family needs to be made whole. And so just as the gospel is an invitation for us to enter and know ourselves anew, to know ourselves in love, it is an invitation to see each other anew. As the gifts that we are to one another. And the fact that whether we like it or not, we belong to one another. This brother of yours has returned. He belongs to you and you into him. So come inside and let's see if we can make this a family affair, a true homecoming. Now Jesus, the very good orator that he is, ends the parable right there. We do not know what the older brother does. We don't know if he responds to the father's invitation and enters into the party. 
We don't know if he sees his brother as his brother and responds in kind. We don't know if he stays in the field. We don't know what the brother does. We don't even know if he goes inside, takes a shrimp, and leaves. He could do whatever. We don't know what he does. And I think that is intentional because in this story, Jesus is sort of rolling the ball into our court and asking us, older brothers, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? Are you going to come inside, leave the debt, the guilt, the fear, the imposed laws? Would you leave them outside? Will you see your lost and younger brother as he really is your lost or your returned brother? Or will you remain outside? Monsieur, these are the questions that we are invited to ask anew every week. Will we respond to the Father's invitation to come to the table, to know ourselves and our younger brothers as loved? Will we respond? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this story. It's so haunting and challenging and beautiful and upending. And so today, as we've heard it proclaimed, would it get into us? Would it upend our hearts and our lives and the laws that we impose on ourselves and the fear and loss that we use to justify our behavior? Would it gently peel all of those things back and speak a word of love and belonging and hope to us? God, with the younger and older brothers in this room, the younger and older sisters in this room, would we hear ourselves as welcomed and as loved, as debts paid, sins forgiven, guilt gone, and a party remaining? Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.